Chapter One, Part A, Women of America by John Bruce Larris. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One: The Aboriginal Woman. The attempt to crystallize within the space of a single chapter even the most salient facts concerning the aboriginal woman of america is one foredoomed to failure it is true that even in the present advanced state of ethnology there is comparatively little knowledge of the conditions which have obtained and even of those which do obtain among the red people of our continent we can indeed see and record the outer results but the inner causes are still in great measure hidden from us the american indian is a peculiar people in the strictest sense of the words and is not to be judged by the standards that we apply to those races with whose histories we are more familiar nor is he to be measured by their heights or depths in many ways he is and always has been a law unto himself and although this state of things is passing away beneath the influence of a steadily advancing civilization it has been conquered rather than modified and the indian remains beneath the surface the same enigma the same unique individuality that he has ever been moreover there is a peculiar difficulty in dealing with this division of our subject one is forced to speak almost entirely in generalities this compulsion existing both because of spatial limitations and because of the dearth of exact knowledge that still exists concerning the conditions of the amaranth in the far past yet enough is known to assure us that only the broadest generalities are inclusively true the custom which was a rule of life among the hurons of the north may have been entirely unknown among the seminoles of the south the cult which was of deep foundation among the delawares of the lakes may never have come to the knowledge of the navajo of the great plains or the tahamas who dwelt on the shores of the pacific for it is a fact which has never received sufficient recognition that the amaranth to adopt a convenient though not entirely defensible nomenclature had as many national divisions as have the inhabitants of europe or asia we speak of the tribes of american indians and in so doing we are entirely correct yet we thus blind ourselves to the significance of the divisions which have always existed because we are accustomed to give the word tribe a limited meaning which is not strictly its possession the settlers of our country came far nearer to truth of expression when they spoke of the five nations for nations many of these tribes really were and nations radically differing in all but physical characteristics and not infrequently where there existed great divergence of climactic conditions in physical characteristics also it is true that the bonds of nationality were not so sharply drawn as they were for example between the gaul and the teuton the slav and the briton but they existed and were discernible in many important matters thus the wide divergence of custom and conditions which frequently appears in our study of the amaranth was not mere accident but was the product of a variant civilization 
if we may apply such term to the barbaric conditions which for the most part existed when the race was introduced to the knowledge of europeans for this reason generalization regarding the race is dangerous and usually leads to inaccuracy because for example a modoc might kill his mother-in-law without incurring any penalty for the deed we must not assume that such a custom was prevalent among all the tribes of the american indians because among the tahamas the newborn child was thrown into a stream by its mother immediately after its birth when if it rose to the surface and cried it was rescued while if it sank to rise no more its body was left to be carried away by the current we must not therefore conclude that such a proceeding was common among the rest of the tribes of the pacific slope each nation and frequently each tribe in the more limited sense of the word had its own customs its own superstitions its own creed its own conditions of existence yet there were certain manifestations of these circumstances which could be found among all the nations of the primeval american continent and it is these things as they relate to the women of the amaranths that is the purpose of this chapter to discuss as well as to cast a rapid glance over the general history and progress of the aboriginal woman of the continent of north america in order that the reader shall understand the normal position of woman among the amaranths in their undisturbed civilization it is necessary to refer to the usual constitution and conditions of the american tribes in general in the light of modern research there can be little doubt though the fact was for long neglected that the original american society as met with by the first explorers of the country was founded upon the gens the totem or clan as the social unit rather than upon the family as was long supposed mr powell defines the american gens as an organized body of consanguineal kindred and while this constituents was often modified by the introduction by adoption of strangers into the gens in such cases the tribal conscience was satisfied with the fiction that such adoption left undisturbed the relation of the gens as consanguinous an indeterminate number of these gentes whose members dwelt together and were under common obligation to assist one another composed the tribe there were also fratries or religious brotherhoods composed of smaller groups of gentries but these need not here be considered the gens was autonomic at least to all practical ends it selected its own chiefmen and decided all matters relating to questions of property or blood vengeance when these concerned its own members each gens was represented in the council of the tribe which council selected the tribal chief members of one gens could not intermarry and most important of all to our present purpose it was by the female line that descent was traced and that property descended such is a brief sketch of the american tribal organization this however was the organization in theory only when it came to the matter of practice it is very rarely indeed that we find the theory preserved immutable on the contrary there were so many exceptions that we must regard the rule only as one to be kept in sight 
for the very purposes of generalization. For example, the law of descent in the female line was very often abrogated, even where the Gentile system was in force, and consanguineous marriages, and even incest, rare, though this is among primitive peoples, probably because, as Darwin points out, familiarity is not inducive of affection, were not unknown. However, there is enough stability in the theory to warrant the deduction of certain general statements dependent upon it. We are now prepared to take a view of the status of women among the tribes of primitive America. It is the general belief that she was a mere chattel, having no rights whatever, existing merely upon the sufferance of her husband, and in all ways a slave, a creature without rights or privileges. Such a picture is far from the truth, even though it contain many aspects of partial truth. As a matter of fact, the matriarchal system prevailed in the majority of the American tribes, and this alone is sufficient to show that woman had some rights. These were not precisely personal, but rather gentile, yet they acted in many ways as personal. For example, where the matriarchal system was in force, all property rights, as between husband and wife, vested in the latter. She alone could dispose of property, and that at her discretion. And it was to her relatives, and not to his, that the property passed on the death of the pair. Moreover, in the tribes wherein prevailed the theory of maternal descent, the children did not look upon the father as a relative. He was not of their gens, and they owed him no duties whatever. So far was this theory carried in many cases that the children would not provide for their fathers when these became disabled by sickness, accident, or age, but sent their unfortunate sires for assistance to the gentres from which they came. Again, the life of a woman was in many cases rated as of higher value than that of a man. We have Father Ragano's authority for the statement that among the Hurons, thirty gifts was considered sufficient compensation for the death of a man, but the blood money exacted for the killing of a woman was forty gifts. Such a condition of affairs as that mentioned by the old Jesuit is strong argument for the theory that woman was held by the primitive Americans in higher esteem than has generally been thought, while her control of the property must have been won for her, judging from modern civilized instances, at least some consideration from her husband. Undoubtedly there was an obverse side to the picture. Marriage by purchase was a feature of American primitive existence and, though this also has its modern counterpart, the methods pursued among the Amorans were not so pleasing to the vanity of the bride as are those of our own day and civilization. The woman herself rarely had anything to say in the matter. Sometimes the selection of a wife for a warrior was undertaken by the whole gens, or at least a committee thereof. Among the Hurons, for instance, this selection was made by the old women, and we are told by J.W. Sanborn that these old ladies, in their search for fitting brides for the young men of the tribe, united them with painful uniformity to women several years their senior. 
this may have been wiser in tribal polity than agreeable to the warriors as for the prospective brides their preferences were not taken into account at all in view of these facts it is no wonder that every lake in our country can boast its lover's leap where the young indian pair fleeing from their cruel parents cast themselves headlong down to be afterward enshrined in song and story song and story have indeed lent their potent aid to confuse and blur our views of the primitive american woman longfellow's story of hiawatha is famous for many reasons but the chief among them is not its fidelity to truth of conditions yet so truly has the name of minnehaha the laughing water become even as a household word to many of our readers of poetry that this sketch would seem incomplete were no reference made to it here all know the poetic story how the demigod hiawatha miraculous of birth tutelary genius of the indians of north america wise benign powerful teacher of all good protector against all ills marries the lovely minnehaha the daughter of the old dakota arrow-maker here would seem to be a union blessed of the gods yet it is foredoomed to bring but sorrow not even the power of hiawatha can save his beloved minnehaha from the impending and foretold fate which is to be hers at last famine and fever to unbidden and unwelcome guests force entrance into her wigwam she cannot withstand the baleful glare of death and uttering the cry of hiawatha hiawatha she passes alone into the kingdom of ponema the land of the hereafter it is all very beautiful in its fancy and imagination but nowhere in the poem do we find the american primitive woman as we have learned to see her through the calmer eyes of those who have sought her story in lower strata than those of poesy polygamy generally prevailed among the amorans and modern civilization is accustomed to regard this as an evil from the standpoint of the woman it may however be questioned whether in this instance as in so many others our pity has not been misplaced the work of the fields was universally performed by women their lords and masters confining their contribution to the household work to furnishing the table with fish and game had monogamy prevailed the lot of the wife would necessarily have been hard the work which she would have found to her hand would have been more than she could accomplish and she must have sunk under it but the custom of polygamy obviated such necessity for it brought into the household other servants who should perform the requisite tasks it is at least probable though it is not an established fact that each household had a chief wife to whom the rest were subservient in fact there is reason to believe that the constitution of the indian household was not unlike that of the israelites wherein the added wives were little else than concubines having a legal status but not full rights of wifeship be this as it may there can be no doubt that polygamy apart from its moral aspect was an institution for which the indian wife had cause to be profoundly grateful it ameliorated her lot in such wise that she was really subject to no more hardships 
than is the European peasant woman of the present day. On the other hand, it would seem that at least in some instances the husband had absolute rights of life and death over his wife. In the not very edifying, and probably even less authentic, autobiography of James Beckworth, the white man who was long chief of the Crow tribe, there is related an incident where, his Blackfoot wife having shown disregard to his commands, he coolly took up his war club and struck her on the head, stunning her, and, as was thought at the time, killing her. The blow turned out not to be fatal, but this does not obscure the point of the incident, which lies in the fact that the father of the woman who was present told Beckworth that he had done perfectly right and acted entirely as befitted a great warrior. Beckworth rather plumed himself upon his conduct, though it is difficult to see wherein the incident called for the display of any very heroic qualities, and in his narration almost apologizes for the fact that he did not strike quite so hard a blow as he had intended. But while the story has its amusing features, our concern in the matter lies in the fact that such conduct seems to have been entirely conventional. This incident occurred in the beginning of the last century, but it is evident that it must have been a survival of custom, and not a novelty introduced by a fresh civilization. Yet we hear at times of women taking part in the most important councils of their nations, of their even leading warriors to battle, of their exercise of all the functions of a ruler. Women have been made head chiefs, a very notable instance of a woman ruler was the queen of the Pamunkey, who was the widow of Totopotomoy, a great Indian chief in the Virginias. She came to one of the councils of the Virginia Burgesses in the time of Berkeley, and was the recipient of much attention. She was described as a woman of majestic presence, who entered the council chamber with a comportment graceful to admiration grave court-like gestures, and a majestic air on her face. And, through the quaint old verbiage we can descry, a woman of carriage and powers of intellect, remarkable in her race. Her dress was picturesque. She wore a sort of crown of black and white wampum plaited together, and her fine figure was covered by a robe of buckskin, dressed with the hair outward and decorated with fringes not impossibly scalp-locks, from the shoulders to the hem. She had been summoned to the council to give a promise of help, but she had her own grievances to relate in the fact that her husband had been slain while fighting for the English, and yet she had never received any compensation or acknowledgment of his services. The incident holds for us its chief interest as a proof of the high standing of individual women among the tribes of the Atlantic Slope. This female rule was not a passing custom. It was evidently of long establishment at the time of the coming of the colonists, and it continued into latter colonial and even into revolutionary times. Of the latter instances of women chiefs, Queen Esther furnishes a noted example. This abominable woman, who played such a prominent part in the massacre of Wyoming in 1778, was a half-breed, probably the daughter of Catherine Montour, also a half-breed, and a fiend incarnate. In the attack upon Wyoming Valley, 
led by major john butler son of that walter butler whose name was so execrated by the colonists the senecas took part led by a noted chief named gigon wata and by queen esther who is probably though this is not certain in supreme command of the indians however this may be we know that she led the attack fighting like a fiend and that after the action sixteen prisoners were placed in a circle around a large stone known to this day as queen esther's rock striking up a chant she passed around the circle at each step dashing out the brains of a victim two of the prisoners however managed to make a dash for liberty and succeeded in effecting their escape and it is to them that we owe our account of the massacre as is so often the case in matters of colonial record there is a confusion between queen esther and her mother and most writers allege that the queen was herself the catherine montour whom others claim to have been the mother of the chieftainess the latter theory is probably correct when in seventeen forty four catherine montour who in her youth had been captured and adopted by the senecas appeared at a council of the indian commissioners and delegates from the six nations the council being held at lancaster pennsylvania we are told by stone in his life of sir william johnson that although so young when made a prisoner she had nevertheless preserved her language and being in youth and middle age very handsome and of good address she had been greatly caressed by the gentlewomen of philadelphia during her occasional visits to that city with her people on business indeed she was always held in great esteem by the white people invited to their houses and entertained with marked civility it would seem then that in seventeen forty four catherine montour had already passed middle age and indeed we know from the account of lord cornbury that she was born some time before the close of the seventeenth century it would therefore seem most probable that queen esther was the daughter of the catherine montour who is a huron by birth and a seneca by adoption but this matters little in the search for the deductions to be made from the story of queen esther and the unfortunate wyoming valley accepting as accurate only that part of her history which deals with the massacre we know that esther was the war-chief of the senecas and that she had absolute control over them we also find that the catherine montour of stone's account whether or not she was identical with queen esther was of such influence with her tribe that she was selected by them as a delegate to an important convention this then furnishes us with a specific instance of the power of women among the indians an incident in the same massacre of wyoming is illustrative of somewhat curious fact with regard to indian life the adaptability of their captives to the life of the woods there was captured by the indians a little girl named frances slocum about five years old for long all trace of her was lost but in eighteen thirty five more than fifty years after the massacre an old woman known as Maconaqua, living in a miami village in indiana was by accident identified as the lost francis slocum to all appearance she was an indian and she was really so in costume habits and even in manner of thought when the events of her childhood were recalled to her memory 
she herself was able to give evidence which rendered her identification unquestionably complete but when pressed to return to civilization and her relatives she absolutely declined i cannot go she said i have always lived with the indians i am used to them i wish to live and die with them my husband and my boys are buried here and i cannot leave them i have a house and land two daughters a son-in-law and grandchildren i was a sapling when they took me it is all gone past i should not be happy with my white relatives i am glad to see them but i cannot go so she was left with her red brothers by adoption but when some ten years later the miami indians were moved west a bill was introduced into congress by a mr bidlack securing tamakanaqua and her heirs a tract of land a mile square embracing the home in which she had so long lived but she pined after her red kindred and in eighteen forty seven died from sheer weariness of the new conditions of her existence and was buried near the confluence of the wabash and the mississinua rivers this incident is here related not merely for the sake of the pathos which it holds but for the purpose of noting a curious contrast between the sons of the wilderness and the children of civilization the case of francis slocum is typical many a captive has been led away by the red men and has afterward become so completely indianized that he or she would stubbornly refuse to return to the life of the white race and if forced to do so would pine and die for lack of the breath of the forests and plains yet never has there been known an instance where a red man became reconciled to life among the whites always when not forcibly detained captive they fled back to the free life which had been theirs even if they had known it but as children if kept in captivity they broke their chains by death so that when we vaunt our own civilization we must remember that it has no charms for those who have known the life of the woods and thus we learn some at least of the reasons why we have failed to produce from the indian a finished product of the civilization of our day uncongenial as it may be to our pride of race to admit the fact it would seem certain that the indian character has power of persistence over that of the caucasian many were the white captives whose blood flowed in the veins of succeeding generations of redmen but that blood was never powerful even to modify the traits which were the inheritance of the indian it is most likely that the first white child ever born on our shores that virginia dare whose story has been told so often that it is needless here to capitulate was carried captive to the tents of the indians and in time became the wife of some brave and that her blood is in the veins of some of the survivors of the red men but it had no power to make itself known in any persistence of trait it is certain that a half-breed whatever the circumstances of his education almost invariably shows the dominance of the indian nature over the white this fact which has not received adequate attention by students of ethnology is worthy of consideration in its significance but this is not the place for such consideration after the somewhat lengthy digression let us now return to our more immediate subject the status of woman among the aborigines during their period of freedom from the white influence 
enough has been said to show that such status was widely different from that usually attributed to the women of the Amorans. It is most true that women were hewers of wood and drawers of water, that they performed most or all of the labor which civilization is accustomed to look upon as menial and much that it considers the rightful duty of man. But in this respect, the American Indian did not differ from most or all primitive peoples. It is only civilization that has released woman from the tasks which she has been accustomed to perform during the days when the chief sources of sustenance were found in the spoils of the chase, the duty of providing such sustenance naturally falling to the men of the community or household. This division of labor, if so it can be called, has been in all countries and among all peoples destructive to the claims of woman to high consideration. Among primitive peoples, there has never been recognized that which is now known as chivalry toward the weaker sex, if only because of weakness, rendering resistance to tyranny and oppression impossible. Women in such communities have always been relegated to the position of slaves and chattels. Yet this state of affairs obtained less strongly among the American Indians than among most races in similar conditions of civilization. With the former, woman had many privileges which she was usually denied among other similarly developed peoples. Not only, as has been shown, did she have the opportunity granted her to make herself a power in her tribe, if her intellect were a force sufficient to enable her thus to do, but she had certain well-defined privileges inherent in her sex, privileges which sometimes were powerful even to overcome the strength of custom or the promptings of vengeance. One of these peculiar privileges is illustrated in the story of Pocahontas, and notwithstanding the hoary antiquity of the tale, it must be set down here in order to illustrate this and some other points needful to be understood if we are to comprehend the true position of the amaranth woman among her fellows. When John Smith, if we are to believe his own account, which, in this one instance, seems fairly credible, had been taken prisoner by Opakanoa and led before Powhatan for judgment, the matter at issue was similarly settled in this wise. The prisoner was laid upon the ground, his head rested upon a large stone, and a club was poised ready to dash out his brains. Nevertheless, the adventurer's brains, which served him so well afterward when he came to write an account of his perils by land and sea, being restrained in their flights by no scruples as to the difference between truth and falsehood, were not to be wasted upon the soil of Virginia. For Matoaca, or Pocahontas, as she is more popularly known, the daughter of Powhatan, rushed forward, threw herself upon the body of Smith to shield him from the threatening club, and claimed him for her own under the custom which permitted Indian women thus to rescue captives taken in fight or by wile. The young princess, as the English inaccurately termed her, being but twelve or thirteen years of age at the time, it is not probable that she claimed Smith for her husband, though even this is by no means impossible, as early betrothals were not uncommon among the Amorans, 
but she could just as easily and efficaciously adopt him as her brother, and it is more likely that she chose this less drastic method of preserving his life. At all events, Smith was rescued from the fate which had threatened him, and while it by no means is impossible that the wily old savage, Powhatan, had arranged the whole matter, adoption and all, with a view to establishing the closest and most favorable relations with such a conjurer as Smith was held to be. This view is suggested to future historians in their search for the truth concerning John Smith. The fact remains that Smith was saved, and one of the noblest liars that ever graced the world was preserved to humanity. It is interesting to note that Smith records that at Appomattox, afterwards bermuda hundred he found a female werowance or queen a fat lusty manly woman who was almost smothered in copper ornaments a circumstance which tends to confirm the fact the frequency of women rulers among the indians pocahontas was not destined to become the wife of the man whom she had saved whether or not she regarded him with the eyes of more than sisterly affection is uncertain, but it is entirely certain that Captain John Smith never loved anything but his own valuable person. Some years later, Pocahontas was treacherously captured by one Captain Argall, who bought her from some Potomac Indians whom she was visiting, the price paid being a copper kettle a valuation which would seem to make strange the pride of those who claimed descent from the princess and held as a hostage. Soon after her capture, she was married to John Rolfe, though whether willingly or in the role of a captive does not appear. Taken by Rolfe to England, she was visited by Smith, whose account of the single interview which had occurred is one of the most cold-blooded pieces of writing that was ever put on paper. It is worth quoting in this display of dignity and pathos on the part of the savage, and of ingratitude and callousness to all decent feelings on the part of the Christian, by courtesy. Being about this time about to set sail for New England, I could not stay to do her that service I desired and she well deserved. But hearing she was at Brentford with divers of my friends, I went to see her. After a modest salutation, without a word she turned about, obscured her face, not seeming well contented, but not long after she began to talk, and remembered me well what courtesies she had done, saying, You did promise Poetan what was yours should be his, and he the like unto you. You called him father, being in his land a stranger and by the same reason so must i do you which though i would have excused i durst not allow of that title because she was the king's daughter with a well-set countenance she said were you not afraid to come into my father's country and caused fear in him and all his people but me and fear you here i should call you father i tell you then i will and you shall call me child and so I will be for ever and ever your countrymen. They did tell us always you were dead, and I knew no other till I came to Plymouth. Yet Pahatan did command Uda Matomakan to seek you and know the truth, because your countrymen will lie much. 
the only reason that exists for believing the report of this interview coming from the source it does is the fact that it tells heavily against the recounter though his invariable smug self-conceit prevents him from seeing this aspect of matter the dignified reproach of smith's neglect the pathetic appeal to the courtesies which had been lavished upon him she was too proud to allude to her rescue of his brains from the impending club and the proud anger which breaks forth in the determination that she will call him father as is her right form a fine contrast to the petty and selfish attitude of her erstwhile friend who would have excused her using the tender title of father but she was a king's daughter and so might by use of the word place him in a false position toward his patron prince charles of course this was the merest excuse he knew perfectly well that such a thing was ridiculous but he needed some excuse for his unmanly attitude toward the woman who had saved his life and whose father had called him friend it is true that king james had objected to the presumption of rolf in marrying a lady of royal birth but even that absurd attitude of the king gives no excuse for smith since between marriage with a princess and the mere use of the formal but affectionate title of father lay a broad gulf the contemptible captain met his saviour no more for the lady rebecca as pocahontas was now called after being presented at court and winning universal admiration by her dignified bearing and lovable disposition died of consumption just as she was about to set sail for her native land she left one child a son by rolf and through him her blood flows in the veins of some of the virginia families of our own day john randolph of roanoke made it his boast that he was one of the descendants of the indian princess but then john randolph was very eccentric indeed in more ways than one if more than proportional space has been devoted to this history of pocahontas it is because in the narrative and especially in the characteristic glimpse obtained through the excerpt from smith's story of the interview are to be found several very suggestive lessons as to the nature as well as status of the indian woman in the time of the early colonists before the new civilization had exerted any formative influence whatever upon the old the dignity of bearing the eloquence of speech the modest and yet impressed demeanour of this child of the woods were of her nature and training not grafted there by environment in which she found herself during her residence in england in the eyes of those who surrounded her she was but a savage but to us she is far more for she is representative of a race which has been greatly misunderstood it was a typical indian woman who stood in such a splendid contrast to the time-serving and ungrateful smith who bore herself at court with all the native dignity of a princess of the royal blood who showed herself in all essentials a better christian and higher type of true civilization than the majority of those caucasian race with whom she came into contact such a woman as this was not the product of a state of unredeemed barbarism neither could she have learned her dignity and self-possession among a people where her sex knew only degraded slavery that she was the daughter of a chief was not of itself sufficient to rescue her from the usual lot of her sex 
nor was her association with Englishmen, especially of the type of Smith, Argyll, or even Rolfe himself, likely to change radically her modes of thought and lend to her any admirable qualities of nature or bearing that were not of her normal environment. So it is impossible to escape the conclusion that among the tribes of Virginia at least, and it is far from probable that these were peculiar in this respect, woman held a position far higher than is generally supposed. It is necessary to reconcile this theory with the known degradation of the Indian woman in after years, and this task is not impossible, but before doing, it is necessary that we retrace our steps to primitive conditions, in order to glance for a moment at the status of women among some of the western tribes, which were in some respects more highly civilized than their brothers of the eastern slope. End of chapter 1 Part A